Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read this for you. This will not be on the screen. Some of the verses will be uh, throughout the sermon this morning. Um, but uh, this morning we're dealing with the question, how could a good and all-powerful God allow evil and suffering? It's a very simple question. Um, all you have to do is believe in God and everything. all your problems go away. That's actually what's being taught, and that's the lie that's being taught in the world right now. If you believe in God, then all your problems go away, all your life gets good. Actually, the truth is, Jesus promised we would have problems in the world. He just promised that he overcame the world, so we don't have to worry and be, be stressed out about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Listen as you would somebody reading a letter. Imagine you, you, are, you are sitting in a New Testament church. You're in somebody's house. And this letter from the Apostle Peter has arrived to your house church. And now you are able to hear the words from Peter as he sends you messages when you're in persecution and you're dealing with all kinds of struggle that are foreign to us today. But this is written to a church in persecution, a church in struggle, in suffering. And these were his words. Praise be to the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Father, we pray that you guide this time, guide my words, say 
Help me to say, Father, only what you once said this morning that brings clarity to this topic and open our hearts to receive exactly what you want us to receive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember where you were in 2001 when the terrorists flew the planes into the Twin Towers? I remember. I actually, I was in, in school at Multnomah, Multnomah Bible College at the time, and I didn't hear about it until we got to class, in my first class. I remember the class, I remember where the window was, I remember the professor. And he, he told us, if, because we lived in a bubble there, we weren't allowed to have TVs, that kind of a thing. And, uh, and he said, in case you haven't heard, um, some terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers in New York. And that was what he told us. And then he went on with class. And so after class, I skipped chapel and went home to watch the news to see what was going on. How many of you remember where you were in 2004 when the tsunami killed 250,000 people? Anyone remember that? How about in 2011 when the tsunami hit Japan and killed 22,000 people? Do you remember that? Remember, I remember that one really clearly. It was at nighttime. It was on a Saturday evening, and it was after our Saturday night service at the church. And we were getting ready to go to bed, and we had the news on, and, and they were showing live coverage of the tsunami. And they were showing people running for their lives. They were showing you know, vans just running, trying to get away from the waves, everyone going as far as they could, and people just in a panic. And we actually turned it off because it was, it was just too horrible to watch. We couldn't stand the idea of watching that happen live as it unfolded. When horrible things happen on the earth, they tend to airmark our lives. When bad things happen on a global scale, they, they, they tend to airmark us to the point that we remember where we were and what was happening when that event takes place. These horrible events also airmark our personal lives when we go through a personal struggle of some kind. We remember where we were and how we were feeling and, and, and the environment around us when certain things happen. And inevitably, when these bad things happen, like, like the news that, was taking, that took place on 2004 when the tsunami killed 250,000 people, the question, the headlines on, on the news were, where was God? Problem for believers in God. How could God allow such horrible things to happen? It poses a problem for us as believers, for us as Christians to, to wrestle with this when problems, to wrestle with this in our own lives, but it, but it also becomes a great stumbling block for people outside the faith to, to want to know an answer to this question, where is God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Either God is not all-powerful because he's not able to stop these bad things from happening, people will say. Or he is all-powerful, but he chooses not to stop it, so then he can't be good. So either good, God is not all-good, or God is not all-powerful. Struggling and suffering leads some people to question his existence. Others just like to give him the blame. 
Some will say if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. He would not allow evil to happen that was pointless. First Peter chapter three, verse or one, verses six and seven. Let me reread this for us. <clears throat> In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even, perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though now for a little while we may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, we, we've talked briefly about how we live in a post-Christian era, and now that we're in a post-Christian era, there's actually some subtle, maybe even not so subtle, persecution against Christians. It's just not persecution as, as we are used to experiencing it and as it's been defined throughout history. But it's also been said that it could quite possibly be more difficult to be a Christian in a post-Christian culture than it is to be a Christian in a non-Christian culture. That it might be more difficult to be a Christian in America as we move towards a post-Christian culture than it would be to be a Christian in a country where Islam is the primary religion. And Peter would say... Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, don't abandon your hope. During suffering, abandoning our faith doesn't help anything. Uh, you know, turning away and questioning the existence of God doesn't really help. What, what I argue for, what I suggest that we do is we actually bring these struggles to God because he is certainly big enough to handle them. If you're struggling with why would God allow this to happen to me, then I would say, as we said in the podcast this last week, go to the source. Go right to God and say, God, why is this happening to me? And see if he doesn't enhance our perspective. This last week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. And this is a quote from Birmingham, one of his letters from the Birmingham jail. And he says this, he says, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that denigrates human personality is unjust. So while some people may not question the existence of God, they, they may not go to a point of questioning whether or not God exists, they may start questioning his goodness or his justice or his morality or his power. And they would like probably that, that laws start to morph to our expectations of what we think life is supposed to be, our hopes of what we think life is supposed to be, instead of what God's right and wrong are. I do want to say really quickly, um, 
I don't have this in my notes, but I think there, is a, there should be in our minds a marked difference between suffering and struggling. Now, struggling, I think, is also a very good thing. God uses it in good ways. And we don't like struggling. We don't like going through the struggle. But God uses struggle to shape us and to mold us and to, to refine us and to cut things out of our lives. But I think there are a lot of things starting to creep into our way of thinking right now that we're calling unjust that really aren't unjust. They're just preferences. You know, we're, we're not getting our way in life. We're not getting what we want. We're not getting ahead like we want. We're not getting, you know, the career advancement that we want. We're not getting the house or the, you know, car or the thing that we want. And so we, check, we call that suffering. And that's not suffering. That is not getting your way. That's being a spoiled child. And that's not uh, something that God is probably going to get involved with other than maybe keeping it from you so that you grow up. I know that's not very nice, but that's true. I do the same thing. I want God to give me things and I get mad at him that he doesn't. But the good thing about this, this argument that we're getting into, this, this debate, is that if you start arguing that either God is you know, not good or he's not all-powerful, we're on a solid ground of existence of God. We're, we're saying that God is, exists. There are some who say that God does not exist. And if there is no God, then you have to ask the question, who's to say that anything is right or wrong? Who determines what is suffering and what is rejoicing and what is fun and what is hard? No, you know, it's just, they'll just kind of be at the whim of everyone. But if, if there's something that happens in our lives, like when somebody flies planes into buildings, I think we're all innately aware, aware that, that there is something higher that tells us that this is wrong. We are wired by God to show that, hey, there's something out of whack here. That was not supposed to happen that way. And the problem, as, he, as uh, Pastor Keller, a lot of this is based on the book. We're coming through the book, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. If you'd like to pick up a copy of that, we have a few more copies in the office. We can get those out uh, so you can take a copy and read a chapter. This was based on chapter two. Next week, we'll read chapter three. But as Tim argued last week, and he makes the same argument this week, is that the problem with most arguments about evil and suffering is the assumption of perspective. And we in our culture are particularly at risk of thinking this way. We think if we can't, from our perspective, see that something good might come from this evil or suffering, we assume it must be pointless. If we can't see from where we sit and where we are in our life that something good might actually come from this evil, from this suffering, then we assume that it's pointless, that there's no reason for it and that it shouldn't be happening. Which, as Pastor Keller argues, puts an enormous faith in our own cognitive abilities. It puts all of the faith in our own ability to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is just and what is unjust. And you'll hear that a lot in reasoning today. 
But as ironic as it may seem, evil and suffering are actually not arguments against the existence of God. Ravi Zacharias, who's an apologist, if you hear the term apologist, that means somebody who defends the Christian faith. They don't, they don't apologize for the Christian faith, they defend the Christian faith. That's what Ravi Zacharias does. And I've got a little clip I'd like you guys to watch where he explains this idea that evil and suffering are not arguments against the existence of God. So let me recap that a little bit, pull out some of the points that I think are worth mentioning again. Part of the struggle with, with some of these questions is it takes some time to kind of get the thinking through your mind. And remember, we're not, we're, not, we're not studying these questions so that we can argue people into the kingdom. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not studying these topics so that we can prove that we're right. We're studying them so that as God leads us into conversations, we are able to give an answer. We're able to give reasons for the hope that we have. And, and there are reasons. There, there's a lot of good understanding that, that can help us understand why God allows these things, why these things happen if we look for them. But as Dr. Zacharias says, the, the question proves that God exists. That's a good starting point if you're talking with someone. The question actually proves that God exists. Because you don't ask the question unless you believe in an absolute moral law, and you don't believe in an absolute moral law without an absolute moral law giver. Somebody had to create that law. And then he says that the ultimate ethic in life is love, and that the will is necessary to love. Without the freedom of will, you don't have love, you have compliance. And with this greatest gift of love, which requires free will, also comes the greatest possible calamity. If you have free will, you can choose to love God and you can choose to reject God. You can choose to live within his way of doing things or you can choose to do your own thing and suffer the consequences. But I love that line. He said that he has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And I think we see a lot of that in the world around us today. I think we see a lot of restlessness and a lot of people searching for answers and looking in all the wrong places, but the restlessness in their heart is leading them to search for something, but they keep coming to the world looking for the answers and what they need is to come to God. And that's why God has you in their life. That's why God has us in the lives of non-believers so that they will see your love and they will see your light and they will see your life and they will want to find the, the hope that you have. He said, if you think there is really such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Because if you believe there's evil, you believe there's good, and for there to be good, there had to be a God. Okay, some might say. So what if suffering and evil doesn't logically disprove God? Who cares? I'm still angry. And they would say that the fact that he exists doesn't let him off the hook for the world's evil and suffering. Okay, that's good. That's actually a really strong argument that is made. I, um, 
I don't have a perfect, a perfect answer for a lot of these questions. I would have to just kind of work my way through it in conversation. So I just kind of want to work you through how I would work this conversation if I, if I was sitting down and talking with somebody. So, so the fact that he exists doesn't let God off the hook. I'm still angry because I'm still suffering. How, how does believing in God change any of that? Well, here's some scripture references that I encourage you to write down and go look them up throughout the course of this week and study them. I'm going to paint for you a picture of exactly what Jesus did and the fact that, that he, when we were dealing with the results of our sin, dealing with the results of our rebellion against him, when we were in our sin... God wrote himself into the story and he came and he sacrificed himself to deal with our devastation. So Genesis chapter 3, we've talked about this one a lot, that we rebelled against God and chose our own way. In the garden, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, to eat the fruit that they were commanded not to eat. Instead of obeying God's one rule, they listened to the serpent, were deceived and decided they wanted to be like God, and, and they wanted to go and, and be able to make decisions of what was good and evil for themselves. So they disobeyed God, and then as a result of that, sin entered the world. The world was cursed. Genesis chapter 3, 23, now there is a separation between us and God. So the Lord God banished him, Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So God created this garden, this paradise, and now because of their choice to rebel against God, they're, they're kicked out of the garden, so much so that God actually put flashing swords to keep them from ever being able to come back in. They weren't going back. And Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin, our rebellion, has actually created separation between us and God. Now we are not connected to God the way that we're supposed to. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Paul, in that context, is talking to the Gentiles who were outside of Christ. They were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And so we, in our sin, are without hope and we're without God. And when we're without God, we have no way to make sense of any of these struggles, any of these problems. In fact, it was our sin that actually brought death into the world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 says, He must not be allowed to reach out and take his hand and also eat from the tree of life and live forever. Prior to the rebellion, they could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever, forever. But because of rebellion, they weren't permitted to do so. In Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of sin, death is in the world. Something has to die to pay for sin. And our sin had to be dealt with. There's no way to be in God's presence, to be in relationship with God without dealing with the thing that's creating the separation. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 
They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So people who don't choose to reconcile to God and, and repent and turn away from sin and embrace God's path are going to be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. The stakes are really high for every single soul. Every single person that doesn't believe the stake is really high to be eternally separated. But John 15, 13, the ethic of love that Dr. Zacharias talked about, the way that God dealt with our sin was love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So we're separated, we're going to die, and our sin had to be dealt with, and the way for our sin to be dealt with was for actually God himself to come to earth, write himself into the story, become a, a key player in the story, and then what we're going to learn is that he's going to heap all of this on himself. Romans 5.8, Jesus took our sin on himself, suffered God's wrath in our place. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Jesus Christ took our sin on himself and on the cross as he's hanging there, he suffers the greatest injustice so that we could be made right with God. The one who had not sinned paid the price for the sins of all humanity. We'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> That's coming. <clears throat> and because of Jesus, we can once again come near to God, Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because we tend to focus primarily on what the cross does for us, we may, excuse me, I'm not used to singing and, and talking. Because we tend to focus primarily on what the cross does for us, we may have missed what the cross cost Jesus. Life Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life had to suffer death. Have you thought about that? Jesus' entire existence for all of eternity was life. Jesus existed with the Father from, from all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has always existed. There was never a moment when he had not existed, when he had not been life, and yet life suffered death. Holiness had to become sin. God is holy. In him there is no sin at all. There is no unrighteousness at all. Throughout all of history, throughout all of eternity, before even the world was created, Jesus existed as holy, set apart, no sin at all. And yet he, as Paul says, had to become sin, who knew no sin, Romans 5.8. 
the innocent became guilty. If there was ever anyone on the planet who didn't deserve to be convicted of a crime, it was Jesus, and yet he had to be guilty because we were guilty. And perhaps one of the greatest things, the hardest things to understand is that communion had to be divided. I know there's some confusion about this verse, but as I read the verse that Elaine just mentioned where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and I struggle with it because it's hard for us to grasp But this is a totally unique event in which there has never been a replication, nor will there ever be a replication of what happened on that cross. And so, does this mean that when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I won't make an absolute statement, but I believe, yes, that means that God had forsaken him, that he experienced separation. Because I think he was carrying the sins, right? So, God cannot, cannot be in the presence of sin. So Jesus, all of the sin of all humanity is put on him on that cross. God cannot be in communion with sin. So because of that communion, that, that communion, they had to be divided when Christ was carrying the sins of the world on the cross. The curtain was torn. Well, the curtain being torn means that now we can come into God's presence because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's not just reserved for the priest. It means everyone can come in and enter into his holiness because of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So life had to suffer death. Holiness had to become sin. The innocent became guilty and communion had to be divided. If you want to talk about things that are unjust, wrong, I think that would probably be the top of the list. There's such a weight on Jesus at the cross that we don't even pay any attention to. I mean, he suffered everything we had to suffer and more because he wasn't just suffering the physical torment of the crucifixion. He wasn't just carrying the weight of having to die and breathe his last breath. He was also experiencing what it meant to be separated from God. He was experiencing what it would be like to be in sin and to be the punishment, to receive the punishment for that sin. But because Jesus went into the furnace for us, he went into the fire for us, we can be assured that he will walk through the personal fires of life with us. Because he went to that extreme, because he loved us, this is the ethic of love that God has given us, because he went to that great length to show us his love, to bring us back, to get us in right standing with him, we can be confident that if he's willing to do that, then no matter how difficult life may get, he will walk through it with us. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Not if you pass, but when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Doesn't mean we won't struggle, it just means that God will be with us. Yes, Jesus physically suffered. 
There was also a great cosmic pain that he was experiencing. But why go to such great lengths? You know, compassion, we've talked about it. Um, Compassion is when you walk with someone in their pain to have compassion. And actually, there's a lot of a lot of crud thrown on God in the Old Testament for not being compassionate, but if you actually read the Old Testament, he's ridiculously compassionate. In fact, Jonah, when he's, when he's complaining to God, because Jonah was called to go preach to Nineveh, <clears throat> and he refused to do what God told him to do, so he got swallowed by a big fish, and then he gets vomited up on on the coast and then so he finally obeys God and goes and preaches and there's a great spiritual awakening that takes place because of his preaching and then after that Jonah gets mad at God and he's complaining when he's complaining and whining to God he says I knew that you were gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and that's why I didn't want to go preach to these people because you would show them mercy God is compassionate, but that idea of compassion is to walk with someone in their pain. It's not to look at a situation alone and say that this is wrong, but it's to look at a situation and say that it's wrong and then be moved as Jesus was when he saw the man who had died, the the widow's only son had died, and he was moved with compassion. It means to be moved and stirred to your gut, to the deepest part of who you are, that you must do something to resolve this injustice. So when you are when you are showing compassion, you aren't just moralizing and saying that's wrong, somebody should fix it. You're saying this is wrong and I'm going to fix it. So Jesus, when he sees what's wrong, God, when he sees what's wrong with humanity, he sees the brokenness, he sees the sin, he sees the rebellion, he sees the separation, and he knows what they were created for, and he sees all of the problems with it, was moved with compassion, and he didn't just sit on the outside and say, this is wrong, you need to fix it. He was moved by coming into the story to show with his life that he loved us. That's a great length. Why go to that great length? So that someday he could end evil and suffering without ending us. Right? God cannot be in the presence of sin. He's holy. If we're going to be in relationship with him, if we're going to live in eternity with him, he had to deal with the thing that was creating separation. So he dealt with it so that he could end it without ending us. So though we may not understand why we're going through pain, why we're struggling, why we're suffering, why there is evil in the world, we know without a a shadow of a doubt that it's not because God doesn't love us. We can be absolutely certain that God loves us because we see his love in the cross. So even when things get difficult in life, throws its junk at our fan, we know God loves us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. 
And if you remember back to our Hebrew series, we talked about the living hope that we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ, that we have a better hope. We are the people of a better hope than the world around us because our hope is a living hope. It's not just a hope that something might someday happen, but our hope is living because Christ is alive. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 and 55, Paul says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, talking about a day that is coming when these perishable bodies will be clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where? Oh, death is your sting. Have you ever lost something? Something that's legitimately irreplaceable? Like lost, like, some, like your most treasured possession. Anyone ever lost something really valuable? <laughs> you lost a stylus to your phone, that's your most precious possession? <laughs> <laughs> But it's important, yeah. <clears throat> well, we moved up to Grandpa's house up at the farm a few years ago, <clears throat> almost five years ago now. And we moved up there, and you know when you're moving, you've got all these boxes, and we had the pack rat shipping container thing, and a lot of stuff was in there. And then we got rid of that, and we unloaded all that into the garage. We just had stacks and stacks of boxes that we were going through, and, the, and Grandpa's house was smaller than our old house, so we didn't have room for all of it. So it was just kind of this long process of going through the boxes to see what we absolutely needed in the house, which was still even not true, because there's a lot of stuff that we don't really need, we just have. But um, all the stuff that we absolutely needed, and then kind to just let the other stuff sit. And so there was a long season of time where there were a lot of boxes in the garage. Well, around that time, Henry lost his doggy. Now you can see this is a very, very well-loved stuffed animal. This is Henry's favorite stuffed animal, right? His doggy. I'm embarrassing him a little bit. <laughs> This was four or five years ago, so you're a lot younger. It's a lot more acceptable. Don't worry about it. But we searched and searched for doggy. And when I mean searched, I mean we tore everything out, especially Becky. She, she scoured the house, went through the boxes, went through every possible thing she could think of, retraced the steps, went back through over and over again, looking for where... It might have gone, and it was gone. Becky would then spend days scouring the internet to find a replacement, but none seemed to exist. And if you were here at the time, you probably saw some posts on Facebook asking, does anyone have a replica of this? Do you have one of these that, that we could buy from you so that we could replace Henry's doggy? But after months of looking, looking online, Becky found one that was similar, but it wasn't the same thing, and 
So we just kind of gave up. It was gone. And there were many days during those months, many months that went by where Doggy was missing, that Doggy was greatly missed. But then one day, when I was finally getting around to cleaning the garage and cleaning out these boxes and moving stuff around and emptying out things that we didn't need anymore, as I was cleaning the garage, there in this big green tub that I've had ever since I was in college and it just had a random mismatched weirdness of stuff in it, there, as I started going through it, I wasn't even planning on going through it. I just decided I was going to go through it because I'm going through everything else. There in that tub is Doggy. So I went back into the house with Doggy. And there was great rejoicing in the house that day. <laughs> Henry grabbed him and hugged him and went around the house. I don't think he put him down probably for days. And he's never been lost since. We've never lost Doggy again. It's a sweet story. You don't have to be embarrassed. <clears throat> when you lose something and you think it's gone forever, and then you find it again, you're filled with this, this new, deeper sense of appreciation for that thing, right? Like when something is lost and you're absolutely convinced it's gone for good and you've actually made peace with it in your mind, you've said goodbye to that thing, you've, you've moved on with your life entirely to the point where now that thing just doesn't even exist anymore and then someday you find that thing again, it changes your entire perspective on that thing from that point forward, right? You, you carry that thing on with you into the future with a new, deeper level of gratitude and appreciation appreciation and thankfulness because what was once lost has now been found and now you have this thing. And this idea that, that death is going to be swallowed up in victory helps, I think, from, from, what, uh, from what Pastor Keller was saying, to, to paint a picture to the purpose of some of the struggle that we have. Because some of the things that we endure in life as we're going through them, they seem like the most difficult, awful, horrendous thing that any human being could possibly experience in that moment. But somehow in God's great plan, all of that stuff is going to be swallowed up in victory. And when that stuff is swallowed up and brought up into the victory of life in Christ, what we will experience is a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We'll experience a joy like we probably would not have experienced had we not gone through those things and had those things then brought back up into the victory of being like Christ. So God is a God of redemption and restoration. Someday everything sad will be made untrue. Somehow all of this pain and suffering will not only make sense, but it will actually make the glory of what God has given us so much more extravagant. C.S. Lewis said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. 
God will make all things new. So then maybe we can quickly look at Jesus and see how he went through the cross to get some insight for how we can go through suffering. How did Jesus get through the cross? Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 says, talking about the Messiah, which is Jesus, after he has suffered, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. In other words, the results of his suffering, he will see and will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus clearly did not want to endure the cross. We've made that point many times now. Jesus greatly wanted to avoid the cross at all costs. But for the joy set before him, because he knew that his suffering would produce results, his suffering would actually bring about the salvation and sanctification of all mankind, his knowledge of what it was going to do was what got him through the struggle. His knowledge of what was going to happen as a result of it was what got him through the struggle. So we, in the same way, though, in the moment, we may not understand why these things are happening. We may not understand why 250,000 people are killed almost in an instant, why why thousands of people are killed at the hands of terrorists, Though, though we may not understand when evil happens to us in our own lives and things that happen to us that we don't understand and we cannot explain. In the moment, they may never make sense. And even in this lifetime, we may not come to an understanding of why that thing happened to us. But for the joy set before us, we can see that we know someday in God's eternity, all of that is going to come back up into this imperishable life and we will experience it as though it all made sense all along. We'll be able to see it that this evil and suffering was horrible, but God used it to bring about something really good because God redeems everything. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me pray for us and then we'll have some questions. Father, thank you for sending your son into the story to take on himself nothing he deserved. But because of love, out of love, we're able to be not only forgiven, we're able to be made right, we're able to be be made whole, we're able to be at peace with God and that, that rest that we were longing for now we can experience in Jesus Christ. And we can walk through the deepest struggles of this life with hope because there's a God who redeems, rescues, and restores and one day he will make everything new. And all the sadness of this life will make sense. 
Father, I pray this week that you would help us not only to see our struggles and suffering in this light, but I pray, Father, that you'd help us to have conversations with people in, the, in our lives around us around this topic, that you would help us to be able to not only digest the material, but to internalize the truth, that there is hope in suffering, and that you would help us to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have, and that those in our lives around us would be able to see that still they have hope. Use us to, to spread the light and the joy of Christ into the darkest places of this world in Jesus' name.